I'm just so grateful for all of you. I was just thinking that as we were singing. So grateful for Hope Fellowship and uh, the chance to love and lead you all. So you all can have a seat. We're going to read today's text as we go through the message. If you are with us or have been with us for the last weeks, you know we're going through the Gospel of John. And today we've come to the resurrection. So it's really... uh, Easter and Christmas, and and we're looking forward to what the Lord has to say to us today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we seek to come to his word and understand it. Father in heaven, we do come to you today hungry, hungry to hear from you, to feast upon your word. Lord, we know that that can only happen by the power of your spirit. And so as we think about uh, this essential part of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, help us to wonder afresh, to be convinced afresh about the truth of your gospel. Help us to be empowered to live in a way that honors you with the resurrection life that you promise. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in many areas of life, there is an essential ingredient that makes something work. You know this to be true in in different areas of life. So you can think about it. Ice cream without the cream is just like sugary milk. It's, It's just sugary milk. It's not so good. A bank without money loses its purpose. A car without an engine, it doesn't run, it doesn't work. You get the point. When it comes to Christianity, the essential ingredient is the resurrection. Without it, the message is meaningless. The Apostle Paul says as much in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says in chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This means that the resurrection is essential to the essential ingredient to the message of the gospel. It's also essential for giving us power to live each day as God intends us to. And since this is the case, we need to have full confidence that the resurrection actually happened. It was an event that happened in history. And understand how that resurrection should impact our lives today. And today's passage is going to put the resurrection on trial, as it were. Because here, John lays out the case for the resurrection with two key points of evidence. And this evidence demands a verdict, a response. And so as we go through the story, that's going to be our template today. Two pieces of evidence, two facts of the resurrection and a response. The first fact of the resurrection is this. Jesus was not in the tomb. That's in verses 1 to 10. The second fact of the resurrection is that Jesus appeared to his followers after his death. We see that in verses 11 to 29. And then the response, the response that, uh, that we're called to give, and, and the question I'm going to ask us is, what is your verdict? And that's in verses 30 to 31. So let's turn first to that first fact of the resurrection, and that's the fact that Jesus was not in the tomb. You see, those who opposed Christianity, they could have 
stop the movement if they could have just produced the body of Jesus. Right then and there, the, the movement would have ceased if they could just say, well, here's Jesus's body. But this couldn't be done because he, his body was not to be found. C.S. Lewis once said, the first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. And what we have in this story is some of those first people, those first eyewitnesses giving testimony in an ancient document, a historical document, a reliable document saying Jesus was not in the tomb. The first eyewitness account that we come to is from a woman who followed Jesus, and it's in verse 1. So it uh, should be up there on the screen, but verse 1 of John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, there are a lot of Marys in the gospel, so we have to kind of get straight which Mary this is. It seems like everyone was named Mary at this time. But this Mary is not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not her. It's not Mary, who is the sister of Lazarus, who anointed the Lord with oil on his feet. This is Mary from Magdala. Magdala was up in Galilee. This was one from whom Luke tells us Jesus cast out seven demons. She had quite a past. She had been healed by Jesus. She had been rescued by Jesus, and she devoted her life to him. So she followed Jesus throughout his ministry, and her and some other women provided for Jesus out of their own means. They were like financial supporters of Jesus's ministry as he went throughout Galilee and Judea. And so this Mary Magdalene, when she got to the tomb, she was perplexed, and she was frightened because the stone in front of the tomb was rolled away. The guards, those Roman guards who had been set there to make sure no one would steal the body, they were nowhere to be found. And she could not find the body of Jesus. And so not knowing what to do, she took off and ran to tell Peter. There's a lot of running going on in this story. She's the first one to run. And she runs to tell Peter, who is kind of the spokesperson, the leader of the disciples, she wanted to tell him about it. And so Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved, I love, I love this because John later on reveals that it's him, the, the author, the disciple who Jesus loved. I, I love how he refers to himself. Upon hearing the news, they, they take off running to the tomb. So here's some more running going on. And John was likely a little bit younger, a little more agile, a little more in shape. So he again, gives us the, the information that he ran faster. So listen to uh, verses three and following, and we get the second and third eyewitness accounts. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together for a bit, you know, and then the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. I just, I just love John's telling of the gospel. You know, when you tell a story, you get to say it from your perspective. So <laughs> he's the disciple Jesus loved. He's the disciple who outran Peter. Um, it's wonderful. 
But he seems to defer to Peter here as the leader by not fully going into the tomb. So even though he beat him to the tomb, he doesn't go all the way into the tomb. Listen to verse 6 as it continues. Then Simon Peter came and following him went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Now, it's curious, why does John go to such great lengths to talk about this face cloth being separate from the other cloths? The other gospel writers don't give that kind of detail. Well, some scholars think that this is because it was for him to prove that no one had stolen the body, because if someone stole the body, they're not going to steal the body and then clean up after themselves and, and fold it up nicely. So it could be that. But personally, I think John mentions this detail because he's describing the most significant point of his life. He's retelling his testimony because seeing the cloths the way that they were with the head cloth there and the other cloths all folded up and the other cloths lying there, it impacted him so much that it led to him putting his trust in Jesus. Listen to verse eight. Then the other disciple, this is John, who had reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and believed. So John, the, the author of this gospel, is writing his testimony for us. When he went into the tomb and saw it empty and the grave clothes as they were, that's when it clicked for him. That's when it clicked when he realized he really is God. This, he really did die. He's not here. He's, he's risen from the dead. We don't fully know what he knows. He doesn't know everything. We know that because even in this impactful moment, John and Peter still don't have the full understanding of what's going on, as evidenced by verses 9 and 10. Listen to that. It says, For as they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You'll remember in a, a various number of times, Jesus, throughout his ministry, repeatedly told his disciples that he was going to die. He would be he would suffer at the hands of the chief priests, and he would rise on the third day. Even back in John chapter uh, 2, he, he said, referring to himself, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But curiously, John doesn't say that he and Peter failed to understand Jesus' words about the resurrection, all the things Jesus had said, but instead that they did not understand the scripture which is what we now call the Old Testament. And it's unclear here what kind of scripture John is referring to, but almost certainly it includes texts such as Psalm 1610. Psalm 1610 says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Just a few months later, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, Peter will use that verse to say that David, when writing the psalm, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection. There's other texts he likely had in mind. It could be Psalm 53. It could be Hosea in Hosea chapter 6. It could be Jonah 1:17 and 2.1. There, there's a number of texts. It could have been he's just talking about the whole Old Testament scriptures. So it's unclear what scripture. The point is, is that the resurrection was always part of the sovereign plan of God. It was embedded in God's word, in scripture itself from the beginning. 
but the disciples could not see it. They didn't understand. They wouldn't fully understand until the Holy Spirit came and taught them the reality, the truth about God's plan of salvation. Well, you've probably heard that hindsight is 2020. You know, as you look back at an event, you think, well, of course, I should have known that. Hindsight's 2020. Well, when it comes to believing in the resurrection, believing in Jesus, hindsight is not always 2020. Because sometimes we look back and we still don't understand. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to help us understand, to help us believe. And because of that, I wonder today, maybe you're here just visiting. Uh, there's a lot of people visiting for Christmas. Maybe you're still wondering about Jesus. Did he really rise from the dead? Is he really the son of God? Maybe consider today that you don't fully understand everything about Jesus. Maybe the Holy Spirit hasn't yet opened your eyes to see. And if that's the case for you today, ask the Lord to show you the truth about the resurrection. For those of us who do believe, perhaps you've adopted a view about Jesus that may or may not be based solely on Scripture. And maybe you need to admit that I don't have everything figured out yet about this Christianity thing. We need to come to God's Word humbly. We need to be shaped by the Word of God, shaped by Scripture. Well, these first 10 verses here establish that first fact of the resurrection, that the tomb was empty and that we have three separate witnesses to those eyewitness accounts. These are historical accounts. The tomb was empty. It leads us to the second fact about the resurrection from this text, and that's the fact that Jesus appeared to his followers after his death. And in this section, in verses 11 to 29, there are three different people or groups of people that Jesus appears to. And through each uh, situation, each case, we can draw encouragement about the resurrection from each one. And in the first case, we have the case of Mary Magdalene. And through her, we see that the resurrection gives hope to those in despair. The resurrection gives hope to those in despair. You see, Mary thought that Jesus was dead. She thought the Roman leaders had won, the religious leaders had won, that Jesus, her savior, her uh, master had died. She was in despair. She was confused. She was full of fear. That is until this encounter with Jesus. Let's pick up the story in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I want us to notice how both the angels and the risen Lord Jesus asked Mary the same exact question. 
They both asked Mary this question, woman, why are you weeping? From our vantage point, we know why she's weeping. Of course, they do too. But the angels knew at that moment, Jesus knew that there was no reason for her to be weeping. Because in her despair, she didn't recognize the significance of the moment. She didn't realize that her Lord and Savior was alive and was speaking to her. But Jesus is so gracious to her. He graciously reveals himself to her. Even in her pain and despair, he shows her that there is hope. There is hope because he is alive. And that is true for every single one of us here today. If you know and love Jesus, no matter what kind of circumstance you're in, no matter what kind of despairing environment you're in, what kind of trial you're going through, what has happened to you in the past and what is going on right now or may happen to you in the future, because of the resurrection, there is always hope. There is always hope because the resurrection gives us that eternal perspective that Jesus is alive and that it's all going to work out in the end. Well, I love this part of the story because Mary only recognizes that it's Jesus. Did you catch it? When he says her name. His, back in John chapter 10, he said, his sheep hear his voice. Mary hears the voice of the one who cast out seven demons from her. She was a woman with a checkered past. She was one who had no hope, but then this teacher from Galilee, from Nazareth, came and, and healed her. And she came to know the one who had made her. And he hears, or she hears, his voice in that moment. He says, Mary. I wonder if you have heard that voice of the Savior. Has, has he called out to you? Has he said your name? And have you responded to him? He does the same thing to us today. He calls to us in our pain and our sorrow, and he calls to us, and he gives us hope. You may remember that women in the first century didn't count as valid witnesses in a court of law. They, they, they were not valued in that society. But the Lord, in his wisdom, he chooses Mary Magdalene out of all the people in the world he chooses Mary Magdalene to be the first recorded witness to the resurrection. It's very significant. It's something that we can't move past. We need to uh, just think about for a moment. What is the Lord teaching us through Mary's account? He's teaching us that his values are very different than the values of the world. We need to remember that. He's teaching us that uh, those who are not valued in society, those who are cast aside, are not so in his sight. Whether it was a woman in that context, or here it could be someone who is disabled, it could be someone who uh, is poor. The Lord sees these people. He loves these people. He's teaching us that no matter our past, that Jesus wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Well, Mary doesn't want to lose Jesus again, so she attempts to hold on to him. She thinks he's back for good. 
She doesn't want to let go. Hey, I lost you once. I'm not going to lose you again. Well, Jesus corrects her in verse 17. He says to her, don't cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, not yet ascended to the Father. That's going to happen 40 days later when he ascends to the Father after appearing to his apostles. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. I love in this moment how Jesus, in this incredible moment, when she realizes Jesus is alive, he sends Mary as a missionary, as an apostle, one sent. That's what apostle means, a sent one. He sends Mary to his disciples. He wants her to proclaim to the disciples that he is alive. What an important mission that he gives to this woman, this despised woman. It's one of the most important jobs she could have ever gotten. The Lord used her. He wants to also, friends, use us in the same way. To go and proclaim that Jesus is alive. I love how John Calvin puts it. He he says that Mary becomes an apostle to the apostles. <laughs> one sent to the ones who are then going to be sent to the world. Well, the second appearance of Jesus, that was the first appearance to Jesus. The second one is to his disciples. And through that appearance, we can conclude that the resurrection emboldens the fearful. The resurrection emboldens the fearful. Listen to verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, when Jesus said, peace be with you, this wasn't just like a kind greeting that he was given to them. He was giving them his very peace, the peace that he had promised just a couple chapters before. He was saying, my peace I give to you. You are full of fear. You are full of trepidation because of the Jews. My peace I give to you. And then he showed them that it was truly him. They saw his hands that were pierced and his side that was speared. And the text in the more literal sense says that they rejoiced. It's not just they were glad. They rejoiced to see the Lord. Can you imagine the one that your leader, the one you have followed, who you thought was dead, now you see him alive? What kind of uh, boldness that would fill you with? But Jesus doesn't appear to them merely to bring them comfort, although that's part of it. He was calling them on mission. Listen to verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So after repeating this phrase, apparently the disciples really needed to have that peace of Jesus. He says it to them again, Peace be with you. But then he gives them the mission and then he gives them the assurance of power for this mission, and then the results from that mission. So first, he gives them the mission. He says he's sending them into the world, just as the Father sent him into the world. It's an astounding statement. 
They are sent to proclaim God's message that Jesus is the Christ to the world, to the people that just crucified Jesus himself and and others, to be salt and light in the world, to obey the Father just as Jesus obeyed the Father. They are to obey as well. Well, that's a daunting mission. It's an impossible mission. So then he tells them where the power for that mission is going to come. This massive mission can't be accomplished on their own strength. I mean, they're behind locked doors, for crying out loud. They're, they're uh, not exactly the boldest people in the world. But just as the Spirit empowered Jesus' mission, so here Jesus foreshadows the Holy Spirit's outpouring by breathing on them. You remember when uh, man was created, how God breathed on Adam and Eve. You, you might remember in Ezekiel where, where God breathes on these dead bones and brings them to life. Here, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's breathing on them, and he's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Could be a little bit confusing. You're thinking, I thought the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, and you would be right. The, the, full, the full outpouring of the Spirit did. Some people think Jesus was uh, foreshadowing Acts 2 here when he says receive the Holy Spirit. I think he actually did give them a measure of the Spirit. John Calvin said it was a sprinkle of the Spirit that would then be poured out in full measure in Acts 2. That could be what's going on. But he's showing them, he's giving them a taste of the power that they're going to need if they're going to carry out this mission. And so likely Jesus is looking ahead to that time that Acts 2 time when that's going to happen. And so they have the mission, they have the power for the mission that Jesus gives, and then the results. Because as they're sent on this mission, as they proclaim the gospel, some will repent of their sins, and they will be forgiven. Others will not repent. They will remain in unbelief, and forgiveness will be withheld. So what Jesus is not saying here is that the apostles had special power to forgive sins, or to withhold sin. Sometimes the church has taken that on in a wrong way and saying they could somehow absolve sins. No, forgiveness is from God alone. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus has given the apostles, and by implication us, he has given us uh, the power, gave them the power to proclaim the gospel. And as people believed, they could declare, you are forgiven. Based on the promise of God's word, not because of their own decision. And those who do not believe, the forgiveness is withheld because they have not believed in the only Son of God. Well, friends, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, which is many of us here this morning, then the risen Lord Jesus has sent us in the same way that he sent the disciples. He has sent us to go into the world and share the good news, to declare that Jesus is alive, that sin has been defeated, that he has conquered the grave. We are not saved just to be comfortable in being saved. We're saved to go on a mission for him. He calls us into missions and into mission. In the power of the Spirit, he gives us the power for this, and he gives us the promise that he will save souls. A couple months after this encounter with Jesus, these fearful disciples, the ones who were hiding around with lock, behind locked doors and all of that, these same disciples are going to turn the entire world upside down. That's how it's described in Acts. These, these men have turned the entire 
world upside down. Because with the resurrection power of Jesus, friends, all things are possible. You may be thinking, well, that's not me. I'm just not a bold person. Neither were the apostles. They were not bold people. They were, they were scared when Jesus was crucified. But with the power of the Holy Spirit within them, they changed the world. God changed the world through them. So now we come to the third appearance of Jesus. We've had uh, to Mary, now the disciples, and now he appears to the disciples again, but this one highlights Thomas. And this appearance shows that the resurrection can convert even the most skeptical among us. Listen to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord but they, he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas was stubborn. He needed proof of the resurrection. He was a critical thinker, if you want to put it in a positive term. But Jesus, again, is so gracious, is he not? He meets Thomas right where he is. I mean, we have a lot of people like Thomas, and I'm like Thomas. <laughs> we, we want proof. We want to know this is true. But Jesus is so gracious uh, to us, just like he was to Thomas when we doubt. He meets Thomas where he's at. Listen to verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They need a lot of Jesus' peace. <laughs> then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus knows what Thomas needs to believe. Jesus knows Thomas intimately, just like he knew Mary intimately, just like he knows the apostles intimately, just like he knows you intimately. He knew what Thomas needed to believe, and it works. Listen to verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas here goes beyond just, yeah, that's you, Jesus, you're, you're alive. He's, he's not just saying that. He is making one of the greatest declarations in the entire New Testament about Jesus' deity. He says, my Lord and my God. He bows down and worships him. He's saying, Jesus, you are God. You are Lord. You are who you said you were. The stubborn skeptic has become a humbler, humble worshiper of Jesus. And I know that there are some here among us that are in a place of doubt when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus or, or believing in Jesus. And if that's the case for you this morning, if you're here and you are in a place of doubt, maybe you have been around church and you're questioning what the faith that you grew up in. Maybe you have uh, been invited by someone and you're just wondering, is this just a bunch of hocus pocus, is this real? Well, if, if that's you, if that's the state you're in, you're not alone. This is a great place to process if you're in that place, to hear the word of the Lord and hear from him. But Jesus, I want you to hear this, he will not give up on you. He's not going to give up on you just like he did not give up 
on Thomas, even if you're in a challenging place, even if you're questioning, is all of this real? There are answers, and he wants to speak to you if you're willing to listen. Well, we need to stop and pay attention to the main, the, the very different needs that people had just in this chapter in order to believe in Jesus through the resurrection. John needed the grave clothes. For him, that's what did it. He saw and believed. Mary needed Jesus to call her name. That's when she realized who he was. And here Thomas needs a physical proof by touching Jesus. And Jesus gave to each one of them just what they needed to believe. But lest you say, I want the Thomas experience, that was, that was a unique time. Only Thomas and a few others could say they actually touched the risen Lord Jesus. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But friends, that's why this account and all the other accounts are written down, because your story is in the page of Scripture. And Jesus wants to meet you wherever you are. Whether you haven't believed in Jesus yet or you have believed in him, he wants you to know that he knows you. He sees you. He is the risen Lord. And he wants to reveal himself to you. The fact of Jesus' resurrection can help convert even the most staunch skeptic like Thomas. And for someone here today, maybe it's someone even like you. Well, with both facts of the resurrection established, that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose and appeared to his followers, then we come to the verdict. What is your verdict? What's your response to Jesus' resurrection? Another way to put it is, what difference does it make in your life today? Because the news of the resurrection is written down for us, not to fulfill your curiosity, not so that you have trivia information for a Christmas party, but so that you can share it with others. God intends the resurrection to change your life, the reality of the resurrection to change your life. He explains it well in verse 30 when he gives us the main reason why he wrote this book, why he wrote down about the resurrection and all the other signs that he gave. John says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These accounts of the resurrection, along with the other signs that in John's gospel have been carefully curated by John. These are not chance stories. There were so many stories, he says, that you could write down books and all the world would be filled with the books of what Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. He wrote these down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Romans says that he, de he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. John wrote these things down so that we might believe and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And so if you don't yet know Jesus this morning, perhaps the Holy Spirit has been working on your heart even today, just like he did in John's heart or Mary Magdalene's heart or in Thomas's heart, and maybe something is clicking for you this morning. If that's the case, make today the day that you believe Surrender your life to Christ. Confess your sins and say, I believe in you. I want you to 
be my Savior and Lord. I want to follow you with my life. You can do that even today. But for most of us, uh, we're in that second category. We have believed. And we want to understand what does it mean that we might have life in his name? Well, as a general statement, if you have believed in Jesus, you do have life in his name. The very moment you believed, you received resurrection life that continued at that that started at that moment and then will continue into eternity. So what we call the already and not yet. You have resurrection life now. Perhaps you need to just dwell upon what you have been given from the Lord. Because Jesus has risen, because we have believed in him, it means that our life is bound up in his. It means that we have new power through his spirit to break the chains of sin and bondage in our life. If you are a Christian and you have life in his name, you can no longer say, well, I'm just an angry person. Well, I'm just addicted to this. Well, this and fill in the blank. Because through the power of Jesus, those things can be overcome because of the resurrection life that is within us. It means that our former life has passed away that the new has come, that we are no longer our own, that we are bought with a price. Friends, if you know Jesus, your life is not yours. He's called you to himself for a purpose. And so to, today, maybe you need to just remember your identity. Remember that who you are is not what you've done. Who you are is what Jesus Christ has done. And through the resurrection, he shows that he is victorious and you will be victorious. As you stand before the Lord one day, you're going to claim the risen Lord Jesus because his righteousness is yours. Maybe you need to reflect on your identity today. Paul says in Colossians 3 that if we have been raised with Christ, which is true of everyone who has trusted in him, then it must change the way we live. We're to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So our focus shifts. When we trust in Christ, our focus shifts from the horizontal to the vertical. We, we think of things that are eternal. We set our minds on those things that are eternal. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that this is a daily process. This isn't something that you do once for all, and then you're like, yeah, I'm thinking eternally, and then you never think on the horizontal level. But as we think eternally, it will impact everything we do horizontally with one another. It's so easy to settle into the Christian life. I'm sure you've felt it. It's easy to know what we're supposed to do, to kind of say, yeah, I know the answer. I know that to be true. But then we just kind of go through the motion and, and don't step out in faith. And when we do that, our passion can dry up. Our joy can feel non-existent. We can fall into old patterns of sin and not think that they're that big of a deal. We, we kind of rationalize, well, I'm saved by grace. It doesn't really matter. If we're not careful, we can easily drift away from the Lord. We can be deceived into thinking that the normal Christian life is really kind of boring. But there's nothing further from the truth. That's why remembering the resurrection and living in light of it is so important because, friends, Jesus is alive. 
He's alive right now. He has risen from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of God, and he has given you resurrection power. Paul prays that we as Christians might know the same power that is within us, that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power is in each one of us if we have believed. And so when God calls us to himself, he calls us to the most adventurous life possible. He calls us on mission for him, on his mission to save souls, to do his works in this world. Not because it makes us right before him, but because we have been saved and we are new people. We are new creatures. We're not our own. And so if you feel kind of like stuck in the Christian life today, you might need to remember that you don't have to wait to live this life. You don't have to wait till you feel like it. You, you can step out in faith because the Spirit is in you if you love, know and love Jesus. So that should embolden us to step out in faith, to trust in the promises of God's Word. So I wonder today if what I'm describing, that adventure, seeing God work in and through you is foreign to you feels like, yeah, that sounds great, but I've never experienced it. If so, today the Lord wants to shift your perspective. He wants to remind you who you are. Maybe you just need to, as we talked about, dwell upon your identity. Dwell upon the fact that you are redeemed, loved, and called into a mission. Maybe it looks like repenting before the Lord confessing that, yeah, you've been living for your own satisfaction, your own comfort, your own life. You have not been living the life that Christ wants you to live. Maybe you need to repent of that. Maybe it is just remembering what Jesus has done for you afresh. We're going to do that in just a moment as we come to the table. The table reminds us that Jesus has paid it all. He has done it all. For us, and he wants to empower us to go out into this mission. Maybe you need to renew your mind. Maybe you have been caught up in the world's system, the world's philosophy. Uh, to that end, as a church, we're going to be reading again this year through the Bible. We're going to be memorizing scripture together. If you want to be doing that in community with us, you can get a plan in the back and sign up for a group. We'll give you some encouragement to do that. Maybe you just need to get into community and live out this resurrection life with others. You can't do this alone. Joining a mission group, starting coming to men's and women's Bible study, just meeting with another man or woman to encourage one another in the Lord. We, we want to uh, adjust our perspective because the Lord is risen and he has called us to be his witnesses. So as we close, I want us to reflect on the reality of the resurrection. I want you to consider, how does the resurrection affect your life today? Do you know that resurrection power in your life? And if so, are you experiencing the life he has called us to in his name? Following Jesus is a thrilling adventure. He has risen from the dead. It's, we're remembering Easter and Christmas. I love it. He has called us to join us, join him on his mission. It's a mission that will last forever, one that will bear fruit into 
eternity. You don't need to be perfect to join this mission, but you need to trust in the one who is perfect and has done the work for you. What is the essential ingredient of Christianity? It's the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no message. But the resurrection really happened. He has risen from the grave, and because of that, we can celebrate Christmas, knowing that this baby went to a cross and then rose three days later so that we might have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are humbled that you would come, send Jesus to earth so that we might benefit from his life, his perfect life, and his death on our behalf, that we might get the power from your spirit as he rose from the dead and showed, that he showed us that he had power and had defeated death and sin. Lord, that same power is within us. Lord, many of us don't feel that even now. Maybe that feels foreign to us. Lord, help us to receive from you the Holy Spirit to yield to his work in our lives and to step out in faith. Lord, we want to be a community where it is clear that Jesus is among us. I thank you for how that is the case, how I see that all around Hope Fellowship. I pray that that would be true in increasing measure.